0: Sunday was pretty cool out there on that his hand. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here to worship with us. What a great crowd to have with us. We're kind of starting a new format in these last two weeks. Oh, by the way, those of you who are online or those of you in the overflow room, glad you're with us as well. So I want to send my greetings to you also. We're, maybe we're not all in the same compartment, but we're all in the same boat, and that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, but we're starting this, this new format of, of one service, right? And we were able to do that last weekend outside, which was fantastic. I loved it. And we, I'll tell you a secret, don't tell anyone, but we may do it again before the snow flies. So maybe October 4th we might do it again. So just be looking looking for that information coming your way but what was so great about that was us coming together to see one another that's that was the beauty to to as paul said just relate even with just a glance across the lawn and just acknowledge each other but to but to be with one another to be the body and have conversations afterward and what have you but here's the thing what's going to happen it's eventually we won't be able to have it outside for six months or whatever. And so we still want to be with each other, right? We still want to maybe talk after the service. And I don't know how long we're gonna to have to keep all these COVID regulations. But here, here, let me give you some guidelines about how things are gonna look. If you want to visit with somebody after the service, if you're in this room, great. Stay in this room, wear your mask, stay six feet, and have the conversation. Have, you know, visit until your heart's content. And then you can go out and leave. You guys who are in the overflow room, hang out in the overflow room. Talk until you've had your fill, you connected. And then go ahead and leave. But just don't hang out in the, in the lobby. Don't hang out in the foyer. Don't hang out on the front step here. Uh, you know, just create space so people can leave. But... Take the time to connect. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. And I'm, I'm to those who were hoping we were going to have child care during the service, I apologize. Um, but I think you'll be happy with the delay. Because we had some ducks we just didn't have in a row yet. And I think you'll just be much more pleased that we're trying to take the time to get things right. And... Uh, Some other things that haven't come together quite yet. We're still the Pink Palace. Yes, uh, I know. And, uh, you know, last week was a rainy week. And so, Lord willing, we'll start to change color into our fall colors. And, uh, you know, we'll be doing that here. But if that is our worst problem, we're probably in good shape, right? Because God's people have had challenges all throughout history. Pretend for a moment it's five forty BC, and you are a Jew. You're an exile in Babylon, which is now currently modern day Iran. I guess it'd be Iraq, excuse me. And you you and your people have been separated from your homeland. Close to 70 years now. Your hometown, your capital, it's in ruins. It's in rubble. The place of worship that God has set aside for Him to be worshiped, to give sacrifices, for you to make atonement, it has been burned to the ground. And your captors, the Babylonians, well, there's no plan in place to restore that place of worship. There's no plan in place to return you to your land of origin. In fact, they deported you so they could assimilate you. So that you would become part of the Babylonian Empire. So that you'd forget that you were one of God's people. Called the Lord God. Yahweh. And to add insult to injury the truth of the matter is it was the actions and the attitudes and the rebellion of you and your people that put you in this situation. You see you sinned against your God who pursued you. It manifested itself in idolatry, sexual immorality Injustice, the rich exploiting the poor. You basically shook your fist at God and how He revealed Himself. And at, at, at moments for centuries, actually, God warned you. He sent His prophets, saying, "Hey, hey, 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 you're drifting from Me, and if you don't straighten it out, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna discipline you. I'm gonna punish you." And there were moments during those centuries where there was repentance, usually led by the king. A king would say, hey, we have strayed from the Lord. We need to return to him. And the people would follow suit. But then another king would take his place and forget about God and it would just end up in in decay, demoralization. And so, finally God had enough. In 605 BC, God sends Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, and they basically conquer Jerusalem. They take the king, they take the royal family, most of the the dignitaries, and they exile them off into Babylon. And they set up a new king in place. First it was the king's son, and he's replaced in three months by the king's brother. And for 11 years, this Kingdom and functions as a vassal kingdom. You, you pay tribute to the Babylonian Empire, but after a while, the the king decides, no, I, I, I think we'll tell Nebuchadnezzar to hang it on his beak. And uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that, so he comes back to Jerusalem in five eighty six BC and totally destroys the city, destroys the walls, destroys the temple, and basically exiles the whole the rest of the nation, save for a few poor people and those who'd run off and were fugitives. Now, over this time in, in exile, some of you have realized your anger, I mean your, your error, you've realized how you strayed from God, and you've sought to turn back to Him, you You've anchored yourself in God's Word. You're hoping this will move God's hand of pity to turn around and move you and your family back home to your land, but you are stuck. You're not going anywhere. It's going to take the hand of God Almighty to do something. But that's indeed what happens. You see, in 539 B.C., God in his sovereignty brings a whole new kingdom. The Persians and the Medes to overcome the Babylonian Empire. He brings a whole new king, a man named Cyrus, who has different ideas about what he's going to do with his people. He wants to send them back to where they're from. He wants to restore their places of worship because he figures if he gets in good with the gods, maybe it'll get in good for him. This is what is going on. The old regime is replaced with the new one. But it all begins with God. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the Old Testament book of Ezra. And Ezra is right after Second Chronicles. So if you're looking for an address or how to find it, what neighborhood it's in, it's right after Second Chronicles. And this is what we call post-exilic history or post-exile history. So we're going to read chapter 1 of Ezra. And we're going to see how God's hand is involved in all of this. So I'm stalling here. Get there. You ready? Okay. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord God, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. In any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the family of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And all their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his God. Cyrus the king of Persia had them brought brought by Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Shezbazar, the the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Bazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So before we dive into God's Word, would you just let me pray for us? Lord, even now as we've read this, this first chapter, we see your fingerprints all over what was happening in the lives of your people, what was happening in history And I pray today you would help us to see how your fingerprints are all over even our situation and our scenario. So Lord God, open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to see how you want to speak to us and how you want to reach out to our hearts today. And Lord, would you give us grace to respond and say yes to you. So it's in your name I pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we are starting this new series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We are going to return to Luke at the beginning of 2021 20, so that we can uh, arrive at Easter with the Easter account in Luke. But for right now, we're going to be in Ezra and Nehemiah. And these books are named so because of the prominent men in each one of these books. At one time, these books are actually combined into one book. And that makes sense thematically and historically. Ezra is the story of the rebuilding and restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, even though we don't even meet Ezra until chapter 7. But that's what's going on. And then when we get to Nehemiah, we actually meet him in chapter 1. It continues the story, but it's about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And they were contemporaries. Their lives intersected. They ministered together. And we'll see that especially as we get to Nehemiah. But in essence, this is a very vivid chapter in the story of God and his people. And I want you to see as we go through this, this is more than just a rebuilding project. This is more than just restoring what fell down It is the Lord pursuing His people. It is the Lord pursuing His people. And this is a theme that goes on and on all throughout Scripture, all throughout history of a God who makes us and then we rebel against Him and we experience the desolation and the destruction of that and then His relentless love to pursue us and restore us to Himself. As far as this particular book, again, there are things that happen that are so remarkable, so unique. Perhaps they felt like they were living in a storybook somehow. I I don't know if they had a storybook. Maybe an epic poem of the time. I don't know. For us, we feel like we're living in a movie. And, And maybe, even in our own circumstances today, we look around and see things are so strange and unique. We feel like we're living in that, maybe only in a negative sense. But God's fingerprints are all over this. There's two things I want you to see, and we're only going to get through the first four verses of this chapter today. I promise you that's not how it's going to be every week, but today I'm just going to focus on the first four verses of this chapter. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see so plainly God's sovereignty He has control over history. He has control over nations. He has control over every circumstance. He reigns in everything. As Mr. Custer would say in Iwana, God is supreme. And that's more than a pizza. But also, I want you to see God's faithfulness to His people to pursue them. And both God's sovereignty and his faithfulness, they intersect all throughout these, these books. So here's, these are the two things I want you to see. And the first thing I want you to see about God's sovereignty is maybe an unpleasant thing. God is sovereign to punish and discipline his people through Babylon. He's sovereign to punish and discipline his people through Babylon. And this is a little background information. This is kind of a how did we get here information. And I'm just going to use one passage to illustrate this because it's it's all throughout uh, the Old Testament prophets, especially Jeremiah and Isaiah. But Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 8 through 11 say this. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, because you've not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. And I will banish them from the sounds of joy And gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, you know, as far as what we know about the Babylons, again, they are a pagan nation. They're not God-worshippers. They're not God-fearers. They're a pagan nation. They are cruel, and they're all about conquest. They're all about taking over, moving people, and making them, assimilating them into the Babylonian Empire and led by Nebuchadnezzar, its king. They are not a righteous people. Nebuchadnezzar is he not a righteous king. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. As he cries out, you know what he says? Hamas! Hamas! Which means violence. Violence. God, why are you using these unrighteous people to punish us? Because I'm God. God, it's God's answer. But you know the greatest concern about God in your life, in my life, is not that we're happy, not that we're prosperous, not that we have good health, it's if you love him. It's if you're pursuing him. Is this if you're finding your life in him? And is there something else drawing you away? Is there something else that you're pursuing other than him? Something else that's causing you to rely on that instead of him. Something else that you think This is what life is about, and it's rotting your soul. And so God will use unrighteous people. He'll use unrighteous circumstances. He'll use an unrighteous object as a tool to chasten you, to chasten me, and draw us back to himself. And he actually does it out of love. He does it out of love. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 say this My son do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in God will use unrighteous people unrighteous objects unrighteous circumstances to draw us back to himself And in this COVID season we're in, is it unrighteous? I don't know. Did it come from a lab in China? I don't know. But it seems unrighteous, doesn't it? Seems unfair. Seems like it's destructive. But in this time, are we discovering there are some things that have been drawing us away from Christ? Christ? Maybe some things that we love more, our comfort, our convenience. And hey, I love as much as anybody to be able to go into any establishment, get a meal, go into a store, buy something without a mask, or what have you. But is that where I'm putting my hope? Is that where I'm putting my faith? Is that where I'm putting my trust? Maybe it's an unrighteous attitude we've had towards someone or some people. Again, maybe God is using this unpleasant virus somehow to get our attention and draw us back to himself. You see, God's perspective is not temporal, it's eternal and he's really not so concerned about whether you can go into high v with a mask on or not more than he's concerned do you love him do you find your life in him are you is it causing you to love others who are made in his image who Christ died for maybe god is using this to kind of sift out our priorities about what's important. Because I'm going to tell you when we get to eternity, this is just going to be a blip on the screen, folks. The question is, do we love Him? Is He our first love? So God, again, is sovereign to use maybe unrighteous means to draw us back to Himself. Number two, God is faithful, in this case, to preserve his people and to restore them. Again, back to verse 1 of of Ezra, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, again, we've already heard from Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus the king. What else does Jeremiah say? Because he had a lot to say. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. Remember he said, 70 years you're going to serve the king of Babylon? This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and hope. That's the context of those words. God is going to be faithful to the words that he spoke through Jeremiah. Again, God doesn't chasten just to chasten He does so to give us a future and a hope. He sent this message in 605 when the first group of exiles go there. Okay? But then he releases them almost 70 years later and releases them in his perfect timing to move us forward towards hope, to move them forward towards hope. And he faithfully and sovereignly kept his word Through Jeremiah. Now, I know there's some mathletes out there who are kind of going, okay, Pastor, I just did the calculations in my head. 605 to 539, we're missing about four years. How do we account for that? There are two answers. I can't tell you which one is, is completely right, but here are the two suggestions. Number one, it was in 535 where the foundations of the temple are complete. So if you go from 605 to 635, that ends up being 70 years. I don't think that's the answer, but that's one of the answers. Here's what I think it is. You see, it was in 609 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar started invading the land, when he had conquered the Assyrian Empire, and he starts conquering the people in that area, including the people of Judah. He was capturing Lachish and other towns. Finally, you know, Jerusalem is conquered in 605. But for four years, there were, the war had already started. There were people who were going into exile. And I think graciously in God's economy, he tells the people that were imprisoned, who were exiled earlier, it'll be 70 years. Because your time counts as well even though the the royal family gets captured in 605. No, you who have been in prison for four years now, your time counts, and I see that. And it'll be 70 years. But I see that. That's how God is faithful to his word to Jeremiah. But bringing it back to us today, if that's how God kept his word then, how much more will God keep his word to us now? To his people who have come to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going through Second Corinthians right now. And I love this, this statement, actually in the first chapter. It says in chapter 1, verse 20. No matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. Isn't that a great statement They are all yes in Christ, so that through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. You see, there's a a greater realization, a greater reality found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are yes in Jesus. What a great thing to know. So my question again is, what promises from God's word are you holding on to, that he's going to be faithful to you in this season? in this challenging time, to give you a future, to give you a hope. And that future is not just temporal. It's eternal. Now, don't, understand, don't misunderstand me. I don't think every promise in the Scripture given like to Israel is necessarily one for one, but again, there's a greater realization of those promises in Jesus Christ. So that's what I want you to know. Number three, God is sovereign to use Cyrus to free his people and rebuild his temple. Think about this. God really removes one superpower, the Babylon Empire, and replaces it with another superpower, the Medes and the Persians. By the way, that was what the writing on the wall is about in the book of Daniel, if you know that story. If you don't, go check it out. He does that, but then he takes the leader, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he works in his heart to execute his plans to return his people to their land and to rebuild his temple. That is amazing. Let me just read again. What we read, verse 2, The Lord of, G- the God of heaven, this is Cyrus's words, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. At any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality there were, where survivors may be now living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So not only does Cyrus grant permission for them to return, not only does he encourage the Jews to go ahead, relocate, go back to their town, but he actually encourages the rest of the persian empire to contribute to the effort of this place being rebuilt materially give them silver and gold give them goods livestock and free will offerings in temple for the temple god is taking this pagan king and he's employing him as a state sponsored process to rebuild his temple and restore worship and restore his people Again, it brings us back to the reality that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over states. He is sovereign over people. He is sovereign over every situation. It's the reality of of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. As a side note, if you're praying for someone to change hearts, God can do it. So be doing that. But for us here, right, in America, we're heading into an election, aren't we? We're going to decide who our leader is, whether we're going to reelect the current president or we're going to elect a different president. And these choices are significant, aren't they? Because that person has influence over how our nation is run, Issues of morality, issues of foreign policy, issues of economics. This is not, you know, an insignificant choice. And we have the privilege, those of us who are U.S. citizens and 18 and over, we can vote to choose that leader. It's not insignificant. But at times, sometimes I get concerned about Christians who I feel like they believe that God's reign will somehow be thwarted if the wrong person comes into power. If the wrong person becomes into that office. And folks, we need to pray for our nation. And by the way, if you're going to join us on our Brain Prayer Lifeline uh, Zoom meeting tonight, we'll be doing part of that today. But here's the point. We need to be reminded that the Lord is quite capable of running the universe, running the world, running our nation, and accomplishing his purposes no matter who is in power. God has used fools and tyrants, as well as good men and women before, to accomplish his purposes. And in this, this, these two books, we're going to see how God works in the lives of three kings to accomplish his purposes. And I want to bring this up because I believe God is going to be faithful to accomplish his purposes no matter who gets elected. I'm not saying just say, oh, I don't care. I'm not saying don't pray. But I am saying, let's not fret. Let's not fear. God is sovereign. God is in control of this situation. And then last of all, God sovereignly knew Cyrus before he came to fulfill his word. God sovereignly knew Cyrus before he came to fulfill his word. You see, there's another prophet named Isaiah. And these are his words about a man named Cyrus. Chapter 44, verse 28. I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And will accomplish all I please. He will save Jerusalem. Let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And then going into the next, the next chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze. I will cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord God, the God of Israel, who summons you by name." For the sake of, my, of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name to bestow on you the title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I don't know that Cyrus actually became a follower of Yahweh, but somehow he used him. And then in the same chapter, in verse 13, he says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness, and I will make... All his ways straight, and I will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. He says, It's not because Cyrus is getting all sorts of good stuff out of this, it's because my hand moved him. Now, I apologize if you think I'm being redundant or just harping on Cyrus being king, but here's my point. These words were penned 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Before he even came on the scene for the prophet Isaiah. He named the guy. God told us who his anointed for that moment would be to accomplish his purposes. If that doesn't send chills down your spine about how sovereign God is, I don't know what will. And God knows how he's going to use all these circumstances, all these occurrences to have his son be born about 460 years later in the little town of Jerusalem because he's a sovereign God over history. But here's where it goes back to us. You who are in Christ. You who have are following Him, who are in this year of the Lord 2020. God knows you. He knows your name. And He knew you before creation came into being. He chose you to be His. And He chose you to use you. Just a quick glance... At this thought in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his good pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely given us in the one he loves. And then you go into chapter 2. And he makes this comment after a great statement about grace. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, we are God's handiwork, we are God's poem created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, however you understand the doctrine of, of election, God knows you. He knew you from eternity past, and He knows you for eternity future. He didn't make us robots. God relates to us as volitional beings, and those choices, they get to count In fact, they have eternal consequences. But I want you to know again that God is sovereign and He knows you. He has known you for all of eternity. And He knows how He wants to use you, He knows how He wants to employ you for His good purposes, for His kingdom. He knows the end from the beginning because that's who our God is it is worth keeping our faith our focus our confidence in Him because it's real easy to say ah what does it matter no God is at work and He is at work in you Christ follower keep following Him keep putting your faith in Him keep making godly choices because of Him Because ultimately, you know what He's most concerned about in your life. Whether you know Him and love Him. How you're going to go through this this season and remain connected to Him. Again, I've told you, this is much more than just a renovation project, a rebuilding project. God is pursuing His people. He pursued them and He's pursuing you now. And I want you to know that. In fact, you know this, Christ follower, but God pursued us so much, he entered into history to make us his own. That's an amazing thought. We're not even at Christmas yet. But I want you to know that as we look at this book of Ezra. And these things are going to come back to us. Trust me. I'm just trying to lay a foundation, and there are a lot of details. Let me encourage you if you're if you're wanting a little bit of information about uh, you know what, what happened right before they went into exile. Read the last chapter of Second Chronicles; it's the book right before, and it kind of tells you about the last kings and how we got here. Um, and I'm sure I'll be talking about it along the way. I, I am a nerd, and I can't help but point at history and how God. Worked at each point. But again, God is sovereign. And He is faithful to pursue us. And that is a great thing to lean into. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and lead us and remind us of that, how He has pursued us in the Lord.